Thank you so much, girls. God bless you for that. Well, we are excited when we get to have missionaries here in the church. We believe that missionaries are God's heroes around the world, and we're always looking to partner with good missionaries uh, to help us fulfill, as a church, to help us fulfill the Great Commission. And so uh, the Steinbarts um, have been on the uh, blaze raising support for, uh, I guess, about a couple years now. Is that right? And uh, I was asking when they hope to be on the field, and they're hoping maybe the summer, this summer, or possibly uh, no more than a year from now, maybe by the end of this year, to be uh, in Kenya. Does anyone here speak Swahili? Just me? <laughs> no. All right. Well, then... Uh, if uh, Brother Steinbart spoke Swahili to us, we wouldn't know, right, if he's right or wrong, would we? Well, we'll take his word for it. He's an honest fellow. So um, he, uh, he knows a little bit, and he needs to, uh, to learn more of that language. That's uh, always exciting, learning another language. Um, well, I'm, uh, I'm excited that they're here. I'm excited to um, uh, have this opportunity to watch their movie and hear um, uh, him preach and try and get a, a burden for uh, Kenya. I've learned uh, a number of things already tonight just from the movie. They've got a nice display table out there, and I want to encourage everyone to uh, uh, stop by and get a prayer card. Very important. I'm so glad you're here, especially if you're a member, a voting member of this church, because uh, this morning we passed out little vote papers for uh, missions. Um, and uh, there's another missionary, Brother Nelson, to the Navajo Indians, and he was here just a matter of a few weeks ago. He never got his paperwork in on time, so he, he didn't get voted on that last batch. So he said, oh, he went one of those, duh, I, don't, I can't even say it. And so he got his paperwork all in. So anyhow, there's two missionaries that we're going to be voting on, the Nelsons and the Steinbachs. Brother, if you're all set, why don't you come on up here? and uh, preach the message God's laid on your heart. Welcome to Grace Baptist Church and our dear people. Thank you. And thank you so much. You've already made my wife and I feel very welcome. And before I go anywhere, let's just make sure, since you saw the video, let me share one prayer request from today. So I just got a message from the missionary over in Kenya. He's actually in Burundi right now, and his wife and his daughter, so his son is in college right now in the States, but his wife and daughter were in an accident. So. She, the daughter is okay, the wife is, they think, okay, but the, the brother Mickey is trying to fly out of Burundi tomorrow to get to Kenya to be with his wife and daughter. So if we wouldn't mind praying for them, that I ever seen any, that's hard when you're not where your family is and you have to try to fly out, out of the country to another country and to, to be with your family. So please pray for them. We're going to look at two passages tonight. So if you don't mind turning to Luke, uh, sorry, not Luke first, turn to Matthew chapter 28. And why I want to start in Matthew chapter 28, because really, this is my burden. I think this is, should be all of our burdens, and this is the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. We're not going to spend that long here. I'm just going to use it as a starting point, though. But Matthew chapter 28. And while you're turning there, I'll just share, just kind of clarify a little bit, just in case there was some misunderstanding about our, what our goal for missions is. Our goal is not for me to go and plant a church by myself and be the pastor. Um, that, other people do that, and that's fine. That is one way to do missions. But our goal is to go, now that there already is a church there, is to go and join a national and the missionary that are there, 
and help train nationals and go with those nationals to plant churches in Kenya as well as other countries in Kenya. And so I will be involved in church planting, but I'm not going to be the pastor is kind of the way it works. And you all have a Bible college here, and I'm excited for that. And this passage is one of those reasons why, because I believe that the college training is part of the Great Commission. So with that in mind, Matthew chapter 28, and I'm going to start in verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And this passage to me means a lot because, okay, I'm called to be a missionary. All of us as Christians are called to be missionaries in that sense. And so if I want to know, am I pleasing God? How am I going to be a successful missionary? Well, this passage lays out several things that I need to be doing if I, no matter what the results are. This is what I need to be doing to be a, a successful missionary. The first thing right there is I see in verse 19 the word go, but then right after that, is the word teach, and that's a command, and I'll spoil your week a little bit for you. The first word there is the idea of making disciples. It's the same word for making disciples. I'm not going to say the Greek word. I'll let uh, Pastor White teach that to his students, but if you're going to be a, um, a missionary, the first thing is we need to go and make disciples. Well, the very first part of making disciples is what you have here on the wall. Making, and you have to see people saved, right? If they're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, the first step in that discipleship is salvation. Then after that, obviously teaching them more things in the rest of the verse, baptizing them, obviously joining a church and learning on from there. So that is a very important aspect of what missions is. But then in verse 20, there's another word teach, and that is not the same word teach. And this is the word, uh, we would get the English word didactic from it. That's kind of what you do in college. When you go to college, you normally have a major. And that's what your course of studies is all focused around. And so when you finish your degree, it's like, okay, you've learned how to be whatever. So I have a sister that went to college and then she did a master's in violin because she wanted to learn to become a violin teacher. So all her courses had to do with something to do with music, specifically teaching violin. That was didactic, the course of study. So we, as missionaries for Jesus Christ, we're supposed to go out and make disciples and then verse 20, with the idea as we teach them everything that Christ has commanded to them. And the goal is so that they in turn would be disciple making themselves. And so that's what I'm excited about. When we go to Kenya, we're going to be making disciples who are going to in turn be making more disciples. And really, it's not about me. It's about making disciples. That's how God wants his church planted. That's what you all are doing here in British Columbia with the college, with the soul winning. You're making disciples and you're working on making more disciples and impacting your community and the world for Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, that was our springboard. Let's turn over to Luke chapter 14. We're going to spend the rest of the time in Luke chapter 14. And the question we want to start off with is, okay, so if we're supposed, as Christians, we're disciples, and we're supposed to make disciples, so do you think it matters what kind of disciple I am? Because if I'm supposed to make a disciple, if I'm not a very good disciple of Jesus Christ, what kind of disciples do you think I'm going to make? So let me put it in other terms. I have three kids, soon to be four, in April, Lord willing. And if I don't teach my, my kids very well, I let them run wild, I you know, don't tell them what's right and what's wrong, I just let them do whatever they want. So I'm not a very good parent. 
what kind of parents do you think my kids are going to be if I let them just do whatever? It's okay, it's Sunday night, you can answer. <laughs> They're not gonna be very good parents because I wasn't a very good parent to them, right? You know, I teach them, okay, you can run in the streets, it's okay, you know, you can do whatever. That's not very good. I'm not gonna be, I'm not training them to be very good parents in turn. So in the same way, if I'm not teaching my disciples, if I'm not a very good disciple myself, then I'm not gonna teach my, dis my disciples to be very good disciples. Does that make sense? So Luke chapter 14, it starts off with Jesus talking to the Pharisees, and in there, there's three, we're gonna summarize them into questions, that Jesus asked the Pharisees to help the Pharisees see the, um, how they were not being very good disciples. Now you say, wait, wait a minute. The Pharisees are not disciples of Jesus Christ, and you're right. The Pharisees were religious leaders back in the time of Jesus, and they claimed to follow God better than anyone else. They kept the law, they, they went on Sabbath day, but when I say that word Pharisee, probably most of us have heard that word, and when I say that word, does a, is that a good thought or a bad thought? It's bad, isn't it, right? It's kind of a negative connotation there, a negative idea, where, you know, when you think of Pharisee, you kind of, at least in my mind, I kind of think of this person, you know, they're kind of looking down their nose at you, right? You know, I'm holier than thou. You don't do things right. I do things right. You need to do things my way. Isn't that the kind of picture you get when you think of a Pharisee? You know, not a very nice picture, and really that's kind of what the Pharisees were. They thought they kept God's law so much better than everyone else that they could add to it. So they had a law where you weren't allowed to go maybe more than a kilometer or two, a couple kilometers from your house every Sabbath day. So how many of you traveled more than, say, three kilometers from your house to get here today? Probably most of you, right? I did. Okay, we, we broke one of their laws right there. Or another one, they said, you know, whatever you do six days of the week before the Sabbath day, you can't do on Sunday or on the Sabbath because that's your work. So I, I am not a dairy farmer, but I have a brother who is a veterinarian, and he works with large animals, mostly cows, on dairy farms. And from what he told me, if you work with dairy farms, you have to milk those cows seven days a week, at least once a day, usually twice or more, to have those cows be productive and not get sick. So right there, those dairy farmers, they'd be in trouble with the Pharisees because they're breaking the Pharisees' laws. Now, that's not God's law, that's the Pharisees' law. That, that kind of helps you get a picture of who the Pharisees are. But I want to even help our picture of the Pharisees get even better. If we were to take Pharisees from back in Jesus' time and put them in today's world, in this church, you know who the Pharisees would be? They would probably be the people that would all be dressed just right. They'd be involved in every ministry. They'd probably go out soul winning even, you know? because they wanted to look very spiritual. They'd have their Bibles there. Every time the church was open, they'd be there. And that doesn't mean that people who do those things are Pharisees. I don't want you to think that. But we would look at them and say, wow, that person is a good person. They're spiritual because they do this, 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 this. So we can't look at a person and say, well, that person's a Pharisee or not. But Jesus can see their heart. And here in Luke chapter 14, like I said, there's going to be three things we can summarize from what Jesus says, three questions that he, basically he asked the Pharisees that we can in turn ask ourselves and say, okay, what kind of disciple am I? Well, here's three questions to help us see what kind of disciple we are. Verse 1, And it came to pass as he, that's Jesus, went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they, the Pharisees, watched him. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful 
to heal on the Sabbath day? Or what does the Jewish law say about healing on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace, and he took him and healed him and let him go, and answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass, like a donkey, or an ox, fallen into a pit, and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. So the first question I have here that Jesus is asking them is, to summarize it, who were the Pharisees seeking to please? Okay, and this is a question you can answer out loud. It's okay. Who were the Pharisees trying to please? Themselves, right? And you can see that by what they were watching. Jesus, they were watching Jesus heal this person. And they didn't think it was right to heal on the Sabbath day because that's what Jesus did six days a week. So to do it on the Sabbath day, that was work, even though that was a good deed. But Jesus points out to them, verse 5, you know, if they have an animal, and not just any animal, those animals he mentions, those are work animals. So if you think, if you have a job, and say you, have, you need a vehicle for a job, and we probably all need a vehicle to get to a place, and what if that vehicle was to, on our Sunday, kind of like their Sabbath, was to fall off into a ditch or something, you know, maybe they're doing some construction and it falls into a hole, or maybe, perchance, I know you guys don't probably get very much snow here in British, British Columbia, but say there was a lot of snow and it slid off the road. You know, some, some kind of accident. Would you just leave your vehicle off, or would you try to get that vehicle out and back so you could use it for work the next day? That's kind of the idea of what Jesus has here. You know, if you have an animal that you need for your work, and they fall into a hole, what are you going to do on the Sabbath day? Well, you're going to get them out. That's the expected answer. And if they would do that for an animal, for their job, how much more this person who's worth something? They weren't really concerned about this person that was sick with a palsy. They were concerned about, okay, you're breaking one of our laws. You're making us look not very spiritual. And you're putting yourselves up above us. You know, and as humans, we like to compare ourselves with other people, don't we? Say, you know what, that... I'm going to judge this person. I'm going to say, find all the faults I can with that person because when I put him down, it makes me kind of go up, doesn't it? It's all about me. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. So who are the Pharisees seeking to please? Themselves. So let's ask ourselves, okay? If the Pharisees claim to be followers of God, we claim to be as Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, disciples. So as disciples of Jesus Christ, who are you, who am I seeking to please? Am I saying, okay, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm, or I'm not going to do that because, you know, I, I like doing this, this makes me feel good, it's all about me, or am I going to do this because I'm going to go to Africa because, you know what, that's what God wants, it's not what I want. Right? That's kind of what we said as a missionary. That's what I had to say as myself, too. It's not where I wanted to go, but it's where God wanted me to go. All those things, that's the first question we need to ask as a disciple. Second question. Verse 7, and he put forth a parable, that's a story that teaches a lesson, to those which were bidden, when he marked, out, marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee, and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. Now, I'm going to stop right there for just a moment. Now, I was saved when I was five, and I grew up in a Baptist church, lots of Baptist churches. My dad was in the military, so I moved around a lot. But all that to say is I grew up hearing the Bible, and so sometimes it's almost like singing a song you've sung lots and lots of times or doing something you've done lots and lots of times. It can be 
repetitive, and you can, in a sense, tune those things out. And so one thing I found that helps me is to make a mental picture. I read these things, and so then I kind of put a picture in my mind. So I want you to see the picture I see. When I read this one, I'm going to make that mental picture for you. So let's picture this. Let's pretend, for whatever reason, there was a wedding here today. Okay, that's what he's talking about, a wedding. And so there was a wedding here, and for whatever reason, these, these pews are out of the way, and maybe there's some tables and chairs out there, and the pulpits aside, I don't know why we're having a feast in here, but after the reception afterwards, right, the wedding, and then after the reception, and we'll say there's a table up here. Now, who, who normally sits at the table that's kind of raised in front at a wedding, our wedding reception? The bridal party, right? So picture this, you have a table with chairs, nobody's sitting here yet, there's people out here, you have some tables and chairs and some, some refreshments maybe, and people are starting to fill in. And so then I walk in and I think, well, you know what? I feel like I'm a special person today. So I'm gonna come, I'm not gonna sit down there because you know, nobody would see me and they don't look like they get their food first. But these seats up here, nobody's sitting here yet. So of course you need someone to sit here, right? And they look like they get their food first. So maybe I'll just sit down up here. Now, if I sat down up here, what would you all think of me if I did that? Who would I be thinking of, right? Or why is pastor even considering this person as a missionary? You know, he thinks of himself too much. Wouldn't you all see, think that? And then here's the MC, the master of ceremonies, the person that maybe announces, say, now announcing Mr. And Mrs., and this is when the bridal party comes in. He's kind of in charge of what goes on. And he would come up to see me and say, you know, Brother Steinbart, these seats are reserved. You need to go find a seat somewhere else, right? And these seats would probably all be full then, and I'd have to go sit out in the foyer. And there probably wouldn't be any food left for me, you know, or maybe just the scraps, the little crumbs. And I would be embarrassed, wouldn't I? Because I would have to walk down these steps in front of everybody. And everybody would know that person sat in the wrong place. That's kind of the picture I get here of this Pharisee. And then we're going to skip verse 11 for just a moment because Jesus isn't done. He has another part to the parable here. Verse 12, then said he also to him that bade him, this is the host, the one that's invited him to the feast, when thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. And here in their culture, and this is true at least in Kenya, and I think in general in a lot of African cultures, there's a lot of tradition there, and a lot of things that are the same in Old Testament as there are in Africa in general. And one of those things is, when you invite someone over to your house, you are in a sense placing an obligation on them to at least return the favor for you. Notice who's, who you're inviting to these feasts. You're calling your friends. You're not calling the, the people you don't know. You're calling your, your friends. You're calling your kinsmen. That's your brothers, sisters, mother, father, your immediate family. Or your, um, sorry, your brethren. Those are your immediate family. Your kinsmen, more extended family, maybe your aunt, your uncle, or your rich neighbors. And you're trying to get something out of those people. Maybe, maybe another meal out of them. Maybe you're trying to get a piece of property out of them or get them included, get included in their will or something. You're trying to get something out of them. It's not just, I'm inviting everybody. I'm inviting you, but I'm not inviting you because you're going to do something for me and you can't. And in this story, there's a, an example of that. Notice in verse 1 and 2, you have the Pharisees and you have Jesus and then you have this other person, 
this person with the dropsy, why do you think that person with the dropsy was at this feast? It's probably at the end of verse 1 that the Pharisees were watching Jesus, and this is what I picture in there. The Pharisees were feeling bad because Jesus was taking away their spiritual image. He was making them look bad. And so they were out to catch Jesus. So they said, you know what? Yeah, this is how we can catch Jesus. Jesus always heals people. So let's get a sick man here. Maybe we can say, hey, you're going to get a free meal out of this, and you'll probably get healed from your disease. And in turn, you help us catch Jesus so everybody knows Jesus broke the law on the Sabbath day. He is not spiritual. Stop following him. Start following the Pharisees again. That's what it looks like. And here's what Jesus does. He turns it around on them. And he asks them this question. Who are the Pharisees thinking of first? In this passage, who are they thinking of first? They're thinking of themselves. I hear some of you saying it. Verse 11, for whosoever exalteth himself, they lift themselves up, put themselves in at the top, shall be abased. Just like that Pharisee, you know, or, or me, if I was to sit at these tables up here at a wedding, right, I'd be embarrassed, abased, put down, because everybody know I sat in the wrong place. Or that other Pharisee, he's inviting certain people, but not other people, and Jesus caught him at it. Because, and so he was embarrassed. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Hey, you put yourself down, God's going to lift you up. You don't, it's not about you. You're not thinking about yourself first. So as disciples of God, the Pharisees were really good about thinking about themselves first. That's why they had this person with the palsy. It wasn't because they didn't care about them. It was because they cared about themselves and their image. For us, if we are disciples of Jesus Christ, who are we thinking of first? Am I thinking, okay, you know what? I want to be in the choir because I want everyone to see my nice smiling face. Or I'm not going to be in the choir because I have a terrible voice and everybody would hear me if I had, right? Is it all, it's all about me. It's not, it has nothing to do with about singing praises to God in the choir. Or I'm going to do this because it's all about me. It makes me look better. I'm not going to do that. Because, I'm not going to go soul winning because I might get embarrassed and I wouldn't know what to say. Or I'm going to, do you see what I'm saying? It's all about me. I don't care what God thinks. It's about me. And that's what, that's the second question. If I'm going to be a good disciple, first question to ask myself is who am I trying to please, myself or God? Second question, who do I think of first? Am I thinking about myself? Am I thinking about God and others? And the third question, verse 15, and one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things. He said to him, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And this one is not the third point, but I just noticed that at this point in our story, do you think the Pharisees are feeling pretty good about themselves, or do you think they're kind of ashamed? I, th I think they're pretty ashamed, right? You know, Jesus is pointing out to them their flaws, and if you've ever been confronted about things, it's really hard to accept someone correcting you about things. And so this Pharisee, this is what I imagine him having in his mind. He's thinking, okay, you know what? We're looking pretty bad. Our plan to catch Jesus and make him look bad is not working, and we're actually looking bad and less spiritual. So let me just change the subject. Let's uh, figure out how, what I can say to make things make me look spiritual again. I know I have this phrase I keep in my back pocket for situations just like this. And I'm going to say, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of heaven. And I want to say, what does that have to do with verses 1 through 14? That has nothing to do with it, right? He just completely changed the subject. But when Jesus, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, when Jesus starts working in your heart, 
Is he distracted by anything you throw at him? Or does he continue working in your heart to get you to the, whatever he's trying to teach you? And that's what Jesus does. And so what Jesus does is he gives another parable, another story to teach a lesson. Because he wants the Pharisees to say, you know what? You claim to follow God, but you are not following God. You're all about yourself and nothing about God. So he has another parable here. Verse 16, then said he unto him, a certain man made a great supper. He had this big feast and he bade many. And back then those invitations back then would be you invite people and those people respond and we would call it like an RSVP in the bottom, or French for responde, si vous play, please let me know if you're coming. And those people would respond, and when they responded, they were giving their promise, their word, saying, I promise I will be there. And that was, that's important today, but that's even more important back in their culture because they didn't have refrigerators and freezers, so if you had too much food, it would all go to waste. And they didn't have fast food stores, so if you didn't have enough food, you couldn't just run out to the store and get some food. I mean, you had to have everything right there. You couldn't just do anything. So it was important to know, I have just enough. And like you're already kind of seeing with the Pharisees, their image is everything. You know, what people think about you. So if you don't have enough food, people are gonna think, you are a terrible host. You didn't count. You didn't think about having enough for everybody. Or if you have too much, people say, wow, you're a terrible host. Look at all that money you wasted. You had too much. It was very important. So it was very important to know, I'm gonna have this many people here. Verse 17, now, okay, he invited many people. Those people responded. They promised to come. They gave their word, said, I promise I'll be there. Verse 17, he sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, come for all things are now ready. And they all, with one consent, began to make excuse. They all agreed beforehand, you know what? We promised to go to this guy's feast, but we are not going to him. We're going to make this guy look bad. The first said to him, I bought a piece of ground and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. So he had a piece of ground. He says, okay, you know what? I have to go really, I really need to go check this piece of ground out. And I, excuse me, I mean, I can't come to the feast right now. That sounds pretty lame, doesn't it? Does that ground go anywhere? I mean, he bought it. Don't you look at ground before you buy it? I don't know. Lots of questions come to my mind as I think about this. Another one, verse 19. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. He bought five pairs of oxen. And I must needs go and prove them. I need to go try them out. I pray that you have me excused. Again, can he wait till after the feast? I mean, this is just kind of common sense to me. And another one, another said, verse 20, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. And the idea is not that his wife was saying, you can't go to this feast. That's not the way it is. But in Jewish culture, if you read the Old Testament law, when you married a wife, you were supposed to stay home with your wife for a year. So that sounds legitimate, right? But let's stop and think about that excuse because that's the most legitimate. Back then, when you got married, it could take a year or more of preparation to get married. So this guy would have known when he was getting married, and if he made a promise to go to a feast, he probably really wasn't thinking about it. He didn't really intend to go to it. Think about even today. I mean, who today gets married without any planning? Like, does someone just wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm not married, I feel like getting married, so let me go find some girl and let's go get married. Who does that? Right? I mean, at least it takes a couple days of planning, right? You don't just do it on the same day. So this person wasn't intending to go to the feast either. And what Jesus is pointing out to them is if you study the Pharisees, if you read their, what they say in the, in the New Testament here, if you read their sayings, their writings, they said, we are God's best followers. In other words, I'm summarizing what they're saying. So when God sends his Messiah, we are gonna be his most faithful followers we're going to help 
the Messiah kick out the Romans. We're going to help the Messiah bring in the kingdom here and restore Israel to its former glory. So let me ask you a question. Of these Pharisees in this chapter, how many of them are following Jesus the Messiah? Not even one. All of them are trying to find fault with Jesus. And yet they made these promises. They made their word. They said, you know what? We are going to follow him no matter what, no matter what he's like. And maybe Jesus wasn't what they were expecting. We, we can think of lots of reasons, but no matter what it was, they did not follow through on that promise. And for us, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we make promises to serve God. We say, okay, God, you know, if you work my heart about this, I'm going to do it. And then when it comes time to do that, aren't we like these friends? It's so easy to have an excuse. Or maybe we never intend to do that. Maybe uh, I think of a pastor's illustration because it kind of applies to my life. And you say, okay, God, I'm willing to go to Africa. And then God calls you to Africa and you say, no, I didn't really mean that. Maybe next year, right? It's so easy to have excuses why we can't do something for God. But that's not a good disciple. That's being like a Pharisee. And when it actually comes time to serve him, we say, no, not yet. Maybe later. I can't do it. But this parable isn't done yet. Because not only is there the, the friends but there, and the master, but there's one other person in this parable. And I think it's important why he's in here. There's a servant. And so the servant, he goes out and invites all his friends, comes back, tells his master, verse 21, the master is angry because he had all these preparations, he had all these plans, and now all this food is going to go to the waste. Um, the idea in verse um, 17, come for all things are now ready, ready. The idea is the food is on the table, it's ready to go, it's ready to be eaten. So he has his food, and remember, they didn't have refrigerators, it's going to go to waste. So verse 21, he sends the servant out to the city and says, okay, invite everyone you can find out there. Verse 22, the servant comes back and says, okay, you know, I did that, and yet we have more food. We have too much food. So then verse 23, the Lord says unto the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. And the idea is not that I go out and twist somebody's arm, not that kind of compel, but I'm going to be compelling. I'm going to say, hey, we need you to come eat this food. This food is going to go to waste. I need you to come eat this food right now. I'm being very compelling to you. I'm trying to persuade you. Just like, think of salvation. When we give the offer of salvation, we don't know how long a person has before, they, before they'll die. So we need to be compelling with them as well. And this servant, what kind of follower of the master was he? Who was he trying to please? The master, right? He wasn't concerned about himself. Who was he thinking about? For, who was he thinking of first? Well, obviously, he wasn't thinking about himself because you think about, okay, he had to go to all these friends, and obviously, there was a lot of friends. And then all those friends said, "No, we can't come for whatever reason." Then he had to go into the whole city, however big the city was. And then his master says, "If that's not enough, now I'll go into the country, go out into the highways and hedges, go out beyond the city, invite everyone there." And this servant could have said, "You know what? I'm tired." I've been to all these people all over trying to get people to your feast, and now I need a break. But he didn't say that because the third point, he had made a promise to serve his master. That's what servants do. As a servant of Jesus Christ, we've made promises to serve him. As a servant of his master, he would have made a promise. Okay, master, whatever you need, I'm there to do it. And he did it, and we don't see that servant complaining one single time. And those three questions can, can help us determine what kind of disciple we are. And I want to end with this. If you can go through the rest of the passage, and there's some marks about what Jesus is looking for in his disciple, but we're going to end with verse 34 and 35. 
Jesus says, salt is good, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And here Jesus says, okay, if you have salt, it's a good thing, right? If you have some food and you put a little bit of salt on it, it, it draws out the flavor of food, doesn't it? And so salt is a good thing. And if we're good disciples, we're like this good salt. We kind of enhance the flavor. We can say, if you're a good disciple, you draw people to Christ just by being a good disciple. Now, our word is important, but our testimony, the silent word, is even more important because it backs up what we're saying with our words. So if we're being a good disciple, we're going to draw people to Christ. People are going to see us and say, wow, I want what you have. But notice, have you ever had salt that doesn't do that? When my wife and I went to Kenya, we had some salt that didn't do that. You, we actually ended with this little mound of white on our food, and it didn't draw out the flavor in our food. It was pretty tasteless. What do you do with bad salt when you throw it out? Now, I know I've been told you don't have very much snow here in, um, what is it, the Forbes Valley? Fraser Valley. Fraser Valley, I'm sorry. I'm still learning my terms. I've been, been enjoying beautiful British Columbia, the little bit I've got to see of it. Much different than where I left my kids. My kids are in Wisconsin, which is a northern state in the United States, and they have a lot of snow there right now, and it's really cold. And when they have snow, they put salt on the roads. So let's just picture this, okay? Salt, and then maybe you have a big truck that comes and pushes that salt, salted snow off to the side of the road. And that's, that salt ends up on the grass, and so that grass in the fall, summertime, is green. But what color do you think that grass is going to be in the springtime? going to be brown because salt, when you put it on the ground, kills. You don't have to be a farmer to know that. And he says, nor yet for the dunghill. That's like fertilizer, the manure pile. That's what you use to help things grow. But if you put salt in it, it actually kills. And if we are not a good disciple of Jesus Christ, we're like the Pharisees and not like the servant, then we are like this bad salt. And we actually turn people away from Christ because we're being a bad disciple. I mean, that's just putting it very simply. If we are not a good disciple, we turn people away from Christ. And so we have two choices on the shelf. We can be either be a good disciple and say, okay, God, I, am I seeking to please you first instead of myself? Really, that's what it comes down to. Or am I putting myself first? If I put myself first, I'm, like, I'm a Pharisee. I'm going to be trying to put pe other people down. I'm going to be turning people away. And people are going to say, that's what a Christian is? I don't want that. Think about what we think about when we hear that word Pharisee. It's not a good term. You know, because of what the Pharisees made it. Or we like the servants, say, when they hear Christians say, oh, I think of this person. I want to be just like them. And I want to tell you one story. Um, after I finished seminary, I got to work a job for a couple of years working, trimming trees for power lines. So um, got to work with a lot of people. And one person in particular gave, he was my boss, and then my boss over him was a Christian, went to our church. He gave my boss, my boss's boss, so my general foreman, a lot of trouble. He gave me a lot of trouble because we were Christians and he didn't, he didn't particularly like Christians. And so he gave us a hard time, but we kept witnessing for, to him and praying for him. And then I stopped to start deputation and go, and go to the mission field. And then my boss moved and took another job. And so that was about two years ago. And then this last year, um, he kept working for the same company and he got into some, he didn't get into some trouble. He started having some family problems. And you know who he called? He called my boss up, my boss's boss, Terry, up. Because he said, you know what? What he has is real. Even though this person made fun of him, he made his life difficult, Terry's Christianity was real. And that's the person he called up. And we can all have stories like that. And I'm not, that's not unrelated. 
when people see us, if we are like this servant, they may make fun of us. We may think that person will never come to Christ. That person hates Christians. But you don't know. You don't know what their heart is like. And if we are this good salt, Christ draws people to, to himself. That's what it says in John 3, 18. If I'm being a good disciple, it says, I'm going to draw people to Christ. I will. But if I am like these Pharisees, we all know that. We can probably, you can probably put in your mind someone that you've met that is a Pharisee, that has that holier-than-thou attitude. And don't they turn people away from Christ? You don't want to be around them. I mean, and maybe we don't start out being as bad as the Pharisees. Maybe we just start just thinking, you know what, I'm better than you are. I don't need that. Or you start judging people. You know what, their kids run around. I'm not like that. Or that person doesn't go soul winning, and I do. I'm better than he is. And we just start judging people like that. If we're that kind of disciple, we are going to turn people away from Christ, and God's going to hold us accountable. There's no other words for it. So the question really is, what kind of disciple are you? Are you being a servant, like this servant here who's not even named? Or are you being a Pharisee? What kind of disciple are you? Pastor, would you come?